0: The book of Timothy was written by Paul, right? Matthew was written by Matthew, Mark was written by Mark, Luke was written by Luke, Timothy was written by Paul. Don't get caught up on that. 1 Timothy was written by the Apostle Paul. It is a letter, a personal letter, that was meant to be directed to Timothy personally, but it was also meant to be read by the church as a whole because it has some very interesting things. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus are what we call The pastoral epistles, they're guides to pastors. Hey, this is what Paul is saying to his young pastor, his young protege, Timothy. He says, this is what I think is important in a church. This is why I want you to learn these things. This this is what you need to focus on in church. And he's going to give him some warnings. And through through 1 Timothy, he says, hey, I don't want you to get distracted with some of these things, but I want to just, before we jump into the scripture, I want to give you a little bit of background on their relationship, because I think the historical part of this is important as well. Timothy was raised at Lystra. He was a son of a Greek father and a Jewish mother. He, uh, we don't know if his father was a Christian or not, but we do know that he allowed his mother and his grandmother to teach him the scriptures, meaning the Old Testament from the time he was at a very young age. His mother Eunice, his mother grandmother Lois, and they're both known and they're mentioned in the Bible for their sincere faith. And we know they taught Timothy. They took great effort to teach Timothy the Bible, which at that time would have been the Old Testament. They taught him the Old Testament during that time. Um, the Apostle Paul, after, his, after he receives Christ on the road to Damascus, he goes on a series of missionary journeys. He has three missionary journeys. The first mission, missionary journey that he's on, it's in about 48 AD. So if you can kind of imagine, Jesus died in about 32 AD, between 30 and 33 AD, depending on, you know, there's some discrepancies there, uh, what you believe. But so about 48 AD, the Apostle Paul sets out on his first missionary journey, and he comes to Lystra and Derbe, he was fleeing a city called Iconium. They were trying to stone him, so he flees, and he comes to this area of Lystra and Derbe, and he heals a man who's crippled. There's a man who's crippled. This is all in Acts chapter 14, by the way, if you want to jot it down and look at it later. So there's a crippled man. Paul heals him. When he heals this man miraculously, the people of, of Lystra and Derbe thought that Paul, and, and they thought that he was a... Uh, he was, he was a god. They thought he was Zeus, and the guy that was with him, they thought he was Hermes. So they began to cut up an ox, and they wanted to sacrifice to the apostle Paul. And Paul says, no, 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 you guys have it all wrong. I'm just a man. Don't, 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 don't do that. I'm not a god. Well, the very next day, they realized that Paul wasn't the god, or wasn't a god, and Paul was just simply preaching the gospel. So instead of sacrificing to them, they decided they wanted to kill him. So they did. They stoned him. They stoned him. They thought he was dead. They drug him outside of the city. They left him on what would probably be a trash heap, basically just his dead body. And then the believers that were there, they gathered around the Apostle Paul and they began to pray for him. And as the Apostle Paul, as they prayed, the Apostle Paul rose up. He came back from the dead. And you know where he went? He went right back into the city because he had more work to do. So while, while the apostle Paul is at or during this first missionary journey, he goes back into the city after being left for dead. And you got to think, how do you stop a guy like that? One minute they want him, they're, they're worshiping. The next day they're praising him. But that's how people are, right? We always kind of, we're, we're a little fickle sometimes and we don't get what we want. People don't do what we think they should. We're, we can speak highly of them one day and the next day that it's just, you know, all of a sudden it's terrible that we don't want him to do with them. That, we can be fickle like that. But the Apostle Paul goes back into the city. During this first missionary journey and his stop in Lystra, he runs across and he meets Timothy. Many people believe the Apostle Paul led Timothy to Christ. In other words, what I believe happened is the Apostle Paul began to share the New Testament or the gospel of Jesus Christ with Timothy. Timothy would have been familiar with the Old Testament because he was taught by his grandmother and by his mother. He was familiar there was a Messiah. He was familiar with all the promises of the Old Testament concerning the Messiah. The Apostle Paul comes on the scene and says, let me tell you who the Messiah is. It's Jesus Christ. He is the Messiah. So he leaves he leaves. Uh, Lystra and Derby, and he goes on. And Paul, during his second missionary journey, will make another return trip to Lystra and Derby. And by this time, Timothy's probably, we're going to guess, in the area of a young man, late teenager perhaps. And that's that story is given to us in Acts chapter 16. And I just want to read something to you out of there. Acts chapter 16. Then he came to Derby, Lystra, and Behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brethren who were there at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted to have him go on with him, and he took him in, and he circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region. For they all knew that his father was Greek, and they went through the cities. They delivered to them the decrees to keep which were determined by the apostles and the elders at Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. So what happened was, during the second missionary journey, the apostle Paul comes, he sees Timothy again, and he says, Timothy, I want you to come travel with me. I want you to come be my protege, I want you to become with me, I want you to come, and, and we read here in the scripture that, that Timothy having a Greek, mo- a Greek father and a Jewish mother had never been circumcised, so the apostle Paul circumcises him, and that's exactly what you think it is, as a Jew, that's a covenant between them and God, that was the covenant that God gave to the Jewish people, and what happened is he, Timothy didn't need that for salvation, but what he needed that for was to minister to the Jews, because he wouldn't be accepted by them if he wasn't one of them. And now having a Jewish mother, now fulfilling the, the law of, uh, of circumcision, now he would be accepted by the Jews. So during the second missionary journey, the Apostle Paul picks up Timothy, they begin traveling and ministering together, and then in uh, Acts chapter 18, verse 19, uh, the Apostle Paul stops in Ephesus briefly at the end of the second missionary journey, and he heads on back home, only to begin a third missionary journey a short time later. Now, on his third missionary journey, the Apostle Paul comes to the city of Ephesus. That's where we get the book of Ephesians. That's the city of Ephesus. That book of Ephesians was written by the Apostle Paul to the city of Ephesus. The Apostle Paul spends three years in the city of Ephesus. Now, he spends three years ministering. He spends three years working and just basically sharing the gospel. He's planting churches during that time in this city of Ephesus. Now, at the end of this third missionary journey, he's heading back to Jerusalem. And on his way back to Jerusalem, he stops in a place called Miletus. He bypasses Ephesus, and he calls all the elders of the churches from Ephesus to him. He basically calls a little bit of a council, a little bit of a meeting, says, hey, guys, come on, i got some things that I want to tell you. I want to show you a few things. And as he gathers the leaders of the churches in Ephesus, he tells them this in Acts chapter 20, verse 29. He says, for I know this, that after my departure, meaning after I leave, The savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, a man will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. So what we see is the end of the third missionary journey. The Apostle Paul warns the elders or the leaders of these churches in Ephesus. He says, guys, you got to be careful. He goes, there's going to be people they're not coming from the outside. They're going to come in from among you. They're going to be part of the church. They're going to raise up and they're going to draw people unto themselves. It's not going to be about Jesus Christ and the gospel. It's going to be about the pastor. It's going to be about the person. It's going to be about the organization. It's going to be about the stuff that's going on in that church. And Paul's warning them, saying, be careful. Be careful that that doesn't happen. He gives them this warning. Now, what Paul said would happen when he gave him this warning that the year was about 54 A.D. This is exactly why he's writing this letter in 67 A.D. called 1 Timothy. Because this stuff has already begun to happen just 13 years later. 13 years later, this is happening. Paul's seeing it for his first hand. So what he does is he takes Timothy and he puts Timothy in Ephesus and says, Timothy, I want you to oversee the churches in Ephesus. You're you're going to be kind of, he's he's a pastor, but he's not the pastor of a single church. He's kind of the overseer. And I want you to hold these guys accountable. The problem with that is Timothy was kind of a young man. Bible scholars believe that he was anywhere from 30 to 40 years old. He was kind of a young man by this time. He'd matured out of his teenage years, but he was still young in the faith. And he would be overseeing men who were much more seasoned, much more, much more but had been in the faith much longer, and that, and we see as we studied Timothy, the, the letters to Timothy, we see that he, he's kind of a he's the opposite of Paul. Paul was very bold. Paul was very wise, and Timothy's always being encouraged to be bold. He, Paul would say, "Don't let your youth stop you. Don't don't you know just keep following. Finish the race, Timothy. Keep." He, t- Paul's always encouraging Timothy. So just to finish up our history here. By about 56 to 60 A.D., the Apostle Paul's making his way through the Romans' courts. He'd gone to Jerusalem. He'd been arrested. He's trying to get back to Rome. He's being sentenced and he asked for a hearing before Caesar. He's being shipped back to Rome during that time. He arrives in Rome. He spends two years in house arrest in Rome waiting for his accusers to show up. His accusers never show up from Jerusalem. Therefore, he's released in about 63 A.D. In July 19th, 63 A.D., Roman Caesar Nero burns the city of Rome. Literally sets the city of Rome on fire. As a result of that, he blames the fire on the Christians. So by blaming the Christians, do you know what that did to persecution among Christians? It went up. So from the point that Rome burned, for the next several years, there's going to be a lot of persecution. And when I say persecution, I don't mean just making fun of, or I don't mean pointing, I mean being killed for their faith being fed to the lions, I mean being burned at the stake, lots of persecution happening. So when the apostle Paul's writing this letter to Timothy, that's all taking place. Persecution is in full swing by about 67 AD. So Rome burns from 62 to 67 AD, Paul's traveling freely around Asia Minor. He's visiting many of the churches. And then in 67 AD, Paul writes this first letter to Timothy. Paul would go on to be arrested one more time and he would write one more final epistle, which would be 2 Timothy, which would be coming later. Now, what we need to understand is in the book of Timothy, there's a reason that Paul's writing this letter. And I want you to know if the reason or the theme or what the purpose that he's writing this letter to to, uh, Timothy is found in chapter 3, verse 14. So if you just turn over a chapter for me, read this along with me. He says, these things I write to you. Though I hope to come to you shortly, but if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourselves in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. So Paul's writing this letter to Timothy and to all the other people in the church to know how that they ought to conduct themselves in the house of God. Now, I know what you could be thinking at this point. You could be thinking, wait a minute, Rob, you said this is a pastoral epistle. Timothy was a pastor. He's writing to the other pastors. Well, I'm not a pastor, so I don't really have to pay attention. I can go to sleep for the next eight weeks, right? No, not at all. Because let me give it to you this way. There are people here in this room who want to serve the Lord, isn't there? You might not serve in the pastoral capacity, but you want to serve the Lord. You need to know how to act. You need to know what God expects from us. But even more so, don't you want to know what God expects from the church? Don't you want to know what God says, says this is the way that a church should act? This is the way that a church shouldn't act. These are the things that are important. These are the things that are unimportant. If you don't know what God expects from the church, how do you ever go into a church and go, this is where I should be or this is where I shouldn't be? So I teach First Timothy hoping that you guys will, number one, get a desire to serve the Lord and realize there is a standard that God sets in place. But I also teach it so that you guys will understand, listen, I need to know what to look for. We've heard good churches and bad churches, and churches shouldn't be evaluated on whether the pastor's funny, or whether the pastor's entertaining, or whether the pastor does or says what I like. It should be evaluated on what does God say that a church should look like. That's the important thing. What does the Bible say? So as we study 1 Timothy together, if you thought Revelation, boy, man, that was just kind of out there, and I didn't really get to, is going to hit you in the heart. Timothy will be applicable to your life, I promise you, as you go through it. Now, let's look and see what the Apostle Paul says to Timothy. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the commandment of God, our Savior, and the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope. To Timothy, a true son in the faith. Grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. Typically, I have a tendency when I come to an introduction like that to just kind of skip over it, just kind of read past it and just, okay, let's get on to the important stuff. But as I was preparing for this message, I, I, I paused there for a little bit. Now, obviously, Paul starts out with Paul. That's, that's who he is. That's who's writing the letter. And that's a little different than our culture. We always sign our letters where? At the end of the letter. But you've got to remember, we don't use scrolls. You see, they used a scroll to write a letter, so they didn't want to have to unroll the scroll to get to the end. So they would write who it's from and who it's to in the very beginning. And so he obviously says this is from Paul, and we see that it's written to Timothy. But I want to pause in verse 1 for a minute. It says, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope. He declares himself the author, but he also declares who he is. Who he is? He says, I'm an apostle. I'm an apostle. That's who I am. I'm an apostle. The apostle, an apostle means a sent one, a messenger, one sent with a special messenger or commission. So the apostle Paul says, I know who I am. I am sent by God. I have a special mission. I have a special thing that I'm doing for God. That's where my focus lies. But he also tells us why he's an apostle. Why why is Paul an apostle? It says, because by the commandment, of God our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ. Why are you an apostle, Paul? Because the Lord commanded me to be an apostle. The Lord, the Lord entrusted me with the gospel. He sent me and I'm taking the gospel both to Gentiles and the Jews, the Paul would say. But he also says where his hope lies. His hope is found in Jesus Christ. Now while we can look at that and say, that's good, Paul. I think there's something we need to understand there. Paul knows who he is. He knows why he is who he is and he knows where his hope lies. I think our culture and even within the church we're kind of confused on who we are sometimes. You say well what do you mean by that Rob? Well who are you? Who are if I was to ask you define yourself for me, who would you say that you are? You might say well I'm a husband, I'm a wife, Oh, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a teacher, I'm a, I work and fill in your, your occupation. Oh, I'm this, I'm that, I'm, I do this. And, I, and you might have all of these things for who you are. But I think we missed the point. The Apostle Paul says, I am an apostle. He also refers to himself as a bondservant. He would also refer to himself as a prisoner in his other letters. The Apostle Paul has the hierarchy or the order in his life correct. Meaning God is first. God is first. I am an apostle. I am working for the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, I think that we forget that. I think that we say that sometimes because we know that God's supposed to be number one in our life, but I think our life looks more like this, and I'll use myself as an example. This is before I was a pastor. Rob a police officer. By the commandment of the chief of police, who, whose hope lies in his ability to pay the bills, raise a family, take one family vacation per year, and retire as soon as possible where I can begin doing who knows what. Do you understand the point? You see, if we don't know who we are, if we don't realize that we are chosen by God for a purpose, Paul's purpose was to be an apostle to carry the gospel. If we don't get that, then we get kind of skewed. If my focus on who I am is my occupation, my occupation, that's who I am. I am. and, and Before I became a pastor, I was a police officer. That's my occupation. That's my focus. Then my hope also lies in my success at that occupation. My hope also lies in accomplishing or achieving the goals that I set out. You see, the apostle Paul's hope lied in Jesus Christ. Now, does it what are you saying, Rob? We all need to become apostles? No, no, I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying we have to have the order correct. I'm saying God needs to be first. Jesus Christ needs to be first. It's not, and my occupation is next to him. I'm not, it's not, I'm a Christian, I'm a husband, I'm a police officer, I'm, I'm all of these things. No, no, it doesn't work that way. You see, the Apostle Paul was bivocational as well. He had a job while he was ministering. Do you know what his job was? He was a tent maker. He made tents. You know tents like people used to live in? That's what he did. He sewed tents. But he doesn't tell you, the Apostle Paul, a tent maker. He's an apostle. He's got a mission from Christ. So our focus, our direction is to be God first. Underneath of that, underneath of that priority needs to be my relationship Uh, with my husband or wife my occupation my ministry my service all well everything else needs to come underneath that instead I think we make the mistake of putting it all on the same level I think we put it all on the same level too many times and we don't really realize God has to be number one in my life and here's why because when you put it all on the same level your hope lies in that thing that you're putting on that same level and when you don't achieve it or it's taken away from you the hope is gone let me give you an example today's the Super Bowl right Football fans go, yeah, it's a Super Bowl. How many of those men out there worked their whole life to get to this big game? I mean, their whole life they've worked and they've strived and they've put in hours. Their hope lies, if their hope is not in Christ, their hope lies in either winning the game or maybe they're just happy being at the game. But what would happen if, on the very first play of the game, and I'm no prophet, so if this happens, it's nothing to do with me, somebody gets taken out? They get an injury. Not only are they done for the rest of the year because this is it, they're done for their career. It's over. It would destroy them, wouldn't it? What happens when a marriage breaks up and the whole hope of the person is in the marriage? What happens when the hope of a career and an occupation, this is my life, and all of a sudden you're not doing it anymore? You're devastated. You're crushed because your hope, the thing that you were living for, the thing that was driving you, is now taken away from you. You see, the Apostle Paul has it right. He said, I'm an apostle. I'm serving Jesus Christ. I'm doing what he wants me to do. Everything else comes underneath of that. Would you be willing, and not now, do it on your own time and in private somewhere, would you be willing to allow the Lord to search your heart and say, Lord, am I doing that? Am I doing, because we don't know when we do it. We just, it just kind of happens, doesn't it? It just becomes our life that we get so focused on. But I want to challenge you. Go to the Lord in prayer this week and ask him, say, Lord, am I putting anything on the same level with you? Am I, am, or am I raising things up to be equal with you? Or do I really have everything underneath? Because if you really have under, everything underneath, when, when tragedy strikes, when the thing happens, you'll know my hope doesn't lie in that thing. Lord, I don't know why that you did that or why you allowed me to lose my job, but what I do know is my hope is in you and you'll take care of me, you'll find another one. Do you understand the point that I'm making? The Apostle Paul had his life in order correctly and I think that sometimes we have ours misaligned. So be willing to take a look and see what God says. Look at verse two. He says to Timothy, a true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. A true son in the faith That literally means he's a legitimate son. Paul's showing the, the connection they have, the personal relationship that he has. And he also mentions these things, grace, mercy, and peace. Usually it's just grace and peace in Paul's letter, but he mentions them here for the pastoral epistles, grace, mercy, and peace. Do you guys know what grace is? Grace is... Grace is this, it's, it's getting what you don't deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Not getting what you do deserve, okay? Understand the difference. Grace, the mercy of God keeps you from dying. The grace of God is what, is what dumps abundance of blessing on you. Let me put it to you this way. Let's say you do something wrong. You go to court, you're standing in front of a judge. The judge says, all right, I'm going I'm to wipe it off your record that's mercy. You've done it wrong. You deserve it. So I'm going to show you mercy. Now, if the judge takes you home, makes you a son, moves you in with him, starts filling up your bank account with money, starts giving you all these gifts, that's grace. You see the difference? You see, so we get the mercy of God, but we also get the grace of God. There's a big difference there. And the peace, the peace of God comes with that as well. A set of favorable circumstances involving peace and tranquility. It's peace with God. It's not just the peaceful feeling that comes upon you occasionally. With grace, with mercy, comes peace with the living God. It's not necessarily a feeling. It's a position that we get to occupy as Christians. We're at peace with God. That's good news for us. All right, verse 3. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus, that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies, which cause disputes rather than godly edification, which is in the faith. The Apostle Paul says, listen, I want you to stay in Ephesus, and here's what I want you to do. I want you to charge. The word for charge means command. I want you to command some that it may teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies. Why? Because they simply cause disputes rather than godly edification, which is in the faith. Charge is command, doctrine. What is Doctrine. It's teaching. It's instruction. It's it's what we do. It's we you know what kind of what kind of teaching do you follow? What kind of teaching? You know, I'm teaching doctrine. It's 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 simply instruction. Now, I want you to understand something. It wasn't like they were anti Jesus in Ephesus. That wasn't it. Wasn't like they were turning against Jesus. And that wasn't that wasn't exactly what was happening. It was more they tended to get carried away by emphasizing the wrong things. You see, sometimes when we hear this kind of stuff and the Apostle Paul straightening Timothy out and encouraging him to go, hey, correct those things that are wrong, we think, oh, they must be doing it all wrong. Now they weren't doing it all wrong. They were still believing in Jesus. They were still doing these things, but they were just being carried away by these unimportant things, by these unimportant doctrine that Paul calls fables and endless genealogies fables. and You're getting carried away by stories. You're getting carried away by, by family history. You're getting carried away by Jewish tradition, Jewish rituals. You're getting carried away by all these things, he would say. And he would go on to say that these diversions, these man-made diversions, they're leading people away from the gospel of Christ. You see, as a church today, our focus needs to be on Jesus Christ. I'm sad to tell you that there's a lot of churches, and I'm not just speaking in our area. I'm speaking as a church in whole, where they've lost their focus of Jesus Christ. Where it's not about Jesus Christ, it's not about his word. It's about going to church to be entertained, it's about going to church to see a show, it's about going to church to, because I want to feel good, I want an emotional experience, and that's not what we're called to as Christians. It's not just an emotional experience, it's, it's about having an interaction with the living God. It's about, church needs to be a place where we emphasize the gospel of Jesus Christ, the word of God. That's why we teach the way that we do. If you stay here long enough, you will will learn the entire Bible. I am going to teach you the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Now, it's going to be a long time. Actually, I'm about halfway done, believe it or not, from the time we started. But if you stay here long enough, you'll get the full counsel of God, which is extremely important because if you only got part of it, you wouldn't have good doctrine. You'd only have part of the counsel of God. Now, what is being taught in the church is extremely important. I believe there's very little room for anything other than the Holy Scriptures to consume the majority of our time together. So that's why we say, Rob, you don't ever talk about politics. I don't want to talk about politics. We have 45 minutes together. That's usually what I shoot for. I don't want to waste that on talking about, oh, you put your hope in who, Trump? I mean, the, 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 the November elections, is that where you want to put your hope? Is that if, They're going to fix our country. No, they're not. You know, read the, read the prophetic, read the prophecies. The country's not going to be fixed. If my hope is in the fixing of our country, if my, if, the, if my hope is in my pension plan, I was reading earlier this week, there's pension plans that are being cut out. People are losing hundreds of dollars a month because their pension, the states are going, I can't afford to pay it anymore. What do you do? There's nothing you can do. They don't have the money. You're just out. That's my hope is that my retirement's in my pension plan. Don't. Don't let your retirement be there. Don't let your hope be there, rather. Our focus needs to be on the Holy Scriptures, which will teach us all that we need to know. Now, let's look at the charge that Paul gives to Timothy. the purpose or the focus. Verse 5. Now the purpose of the commandments is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, from a sincere faith, from which some having strayed have turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. Paul says the purpose of this, or the King James says the end of this. The word is telos. It means end or completion. The completion of this, it's where we get our word telescope from. It's the aim or the focus. We're aiming at something. We're focusing. He says the aim of this, the reason I'm telling you this, Timothy, and this is important. This is why you're doing what you're doing, Timothy. It's got to be, the commandment is love. It's got to be love. This is not so Paul can be more popular than somebody else, not so that his church can grow larger than somebody else. The commandment has to be love, and he says it has to come from three places. It's got to come from a pure heart, it's got to come from a good conscience, and it's got to come from a sincere faith. You see, when Timothy takes on this job of correcting these leaders, that's a pretty weighty job, don't you think? What happens when a bunch of pastors get corrected by somebody? They're going to want to know, who are you to correct me? Who are you? But you see, Timothy's heart, Paul's saying, Timothy, your heart needs to be pure. Your conscience needs to be good. Your faith, which means it needs to be sincere, which means unhypocritical. If you're going to correct Timothy, you're going to have to be living the life, walking the walk that you're telling them to do. You can't be caught up in things or excuses for them. The love there that he's saying is agape love. If you don't know, there's different levels of love in the Greek language. Agape being the highest one. It's the unconditional love. It's the one that says, I will do anything. I will move forward. I will, I, it, it's, it's an action love. It's a love that says, I will do this for you. When Timothy goes to correct these pastors, no different than if you were to call up one of your friends and say, hey, I see some things in your life that maybe aren't pleasing to the Lord, you better expect the response of, don't talk to me anymore. If you're doing that for any other reason than love, it'll be clearly obvious. I've said it before, I'll say it again. As this discipline falls, as this correction takes place, without love, it will only breed rebellion to what the Lord is doing. With love, it'll bring correction, it'll bring reproof, it'll bring change, it'll bring those things. But the whole focus and what Paul's telling Timothy is, your heart has to be love. Your heart has to be pure, which means clean, spotless, free of adulterating matter. Your, heart needs to, your conscience needs to be good, a good awareness about something. You need to have a good, good idea of what's going on here. Your faith, Timothy, needs to be sincere, and that word for sincere means unhypocritical. Unhypocritical, that's what Christians get blamed at. We're all hypocrites, aren't we? Before you became one, a bunch of hypocrites, I don't want to go there. You know, they're a bunch of hypocrites. Isn't that sad that they can say that about us? Isn't that sad that we have to be called hypocrites? And that's a lot of times, that's the the view that people have of the church. We shouldn't be that way. Matter of fact, if you're a Christian, you're living a hypocritical life, stop calling yourself a Christian. You're making it look bad for the rest of us. I'm not saying be perfect, because we're not. We're forgiven. But don't live a hypocritical life. That's not pleasing to God. But here's the problem in verse 6, for which some, some, they've strayed. They've turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. In other words, he's saying there's people that desire to be teachers. They've strayed away from the gospel and they've gone back to teaching the law. They're teaching the law, They're, they've turned aside to idle talk, it says. That's babblings. Their they're, 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 they're teaching is producing more questions than it is answers. They're just bringing up points. They're they're not teaching anything. They're just they're just uh, let's have a let's have a think tank. Well, I'll say what we think. There's no there's no teaching going forth. It's just it's just talk. It's it's idle talk. It's not doing anything. In fact, they desire to be teachers of the law, but they really don't even understand the law. They really don't understand what they're teaching. Paul goes on to tell us what it is they don't understand in verse 8. Says, but we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers, murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, And if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. The apostle Paul tells us two things about the law. Number one, he says it's good. The law is a good thing. And number two, he says, he tells us who it's for, and he gives us a whole list of people there who it's for. He says the law is good if it's used lawfully. Now, let me just explain. You guys know what the law is, right? It's the Old Testament law. It's, it's, it's the rules, if you will. It's the rules. You drive down the road, you see a speed limit sign. What does it tell you? What the limit is. Don't, that's the law. Don't cross over the law. The apostle Paul says it's good. Here's what was taking place. People were coming to Christ. They were, they were placing themselves under the authority of God. And now all of a sudden they're trying to institute all of these laws, Jewish laws, into their lives. Let me see if I can put it to you in a way that you can understand. The law, here's the way Paul wants it to be. The law is supposed to be what he calls a schoolmaster. Think of it as a mirror. If you, have a, if you get your face dirty and you walk into the mirror and you look at the mirror, what does the mirror show you? It shows you that your face is dirty, right? Do you then scrub your face with the mirror to get clean? No, you would then use water to get clean or whatever you're going to use to wipe your face. So here's what Paul's saying is the law is to show us that we're dirty, that we're sinners. And then we go to Jesus Christ to get clean, to get forgiven for our sins. We don't use the law to clean ourselves up. We can't then go, all right, well, I broke that law. Now I'm going to keep that law. I'm going to, I'm going to focus on everything I do is to be focused on keeping that law. You won't make it, though. You will always fall short of keeping the law. You can't even, you can't even keep the laws you set in your own life. Try to go on a diet and see how long it lasts. I just made it to February. How many people are still keeping their new year's resolutions? Raise your hand. One. Now, Of those that aren't keeping them, did you make them and break them? Or did you just, I don't even make them anymore. I know I can't keep them. You see, that's usually, why bother? I know I can't. We've come to, you know, you make a few and you realize this is dumb. I know I can't keep it. So why eat healthy for a week and just keep right on going? That's the whole point. The apostle Paul says, listen, as believers, when we come to the Lord Jesus Christ, we don't find our righteousness in now keeping the law that once defined us. It was the law that showed the apostle Paul that he was a sinner. It's the law that when we look at the law, we go, I've failed in that area. Therefore, I need forgiveness. I can't keep the law. The mistake that people make is they look around them and they go, well, I'm doing better than you over there. And I'm doing better than you over there. So I'm spiritual. I'm righteous because I'm doing better than everybody I can point my finger at. And you always find somebody to point your finger at that's doing worse than you. You don't ever want to be held to the standard because what is our standard it was jesus was our standard right he kept the law perfectly he's the one he's the standard but we make the mistake of thinking we can make ourselves righteous by keeping the law and that's what they were teaching that's what the apostle Paul's saying he goes listen the law is good it has a purpose it's so that we'll know that we need a savior that's the whole purpose that's why god gave the jewish people the law so that when the savior came they go thank you lord finally for getting us out from underneath keeping these laws we don't have to do it anymore. But he also tells us who the law is for. The law is not made for a righteous person. Why? Because the righteous person is underneath Jesus Christ. The law is but for the lawless and the insubordinate. You see, the lawless are the people that are committing all the sins. The insubordinate, those are the people. That's not talking about your boss. I'm not, I'm not listening to what my boss says. It's talking about you're not, you're not submitting to Jesus Christ. I'm I'm not placing myself under God. Well, then the law is for you. The law is for you. It's supposed to show you what you're doing wrong. The law is for the insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and the profane. Now we can skip to the next because Well, I've never murdered anybody. Murdered the fathers and mothers and mothers and manslayers, for fornicators, the word there is pornea. For sodomites, referring to homosexual relationships. For kidnappers, and that refers to uh, slavery. It refers to uh, kidnapping, you know, in the sexual trade where, the, where people are being kidnapped against their will. For liars, whoa, wait a minute. That, I, I was okay when, until you said that one, you know. For liars, for perjurers, false testimony. And in case we missed you, if there's any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine or healthy teaching or in, healthy instruction. So Paul's making it very clear. He says, and he's reminding Timothy, hey, Timothy, you know this, but the law is good. It's what's showing people that they need a savior. It's not what we give to redeem people to then live their life by. And that's what we need to understand. And he says it in verse 11, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. Remember the apostle Paul's writing to the church in Ephesus. He's writing to 1 Timothy, but Timothy is overseeing the church's Ephesus. The year is around 67 AD, 25 to 30 years later. How was the church doing? How was the church doing? I want you to turn with me to Revelation. You may remember this from our study, and we'll close in this section. Revelation chapter 2. We know that this portion of the Revelation is where Jesus is walking among the churches and he's going to basically evaluate the churches. And this, here in chapter 2, verse 1, he's going to be looking at the church in Ephesus. Timothy has been there. His goal was to instill doctrine, good doctrine. He wants him to focus on good teaching. And here's what Jesus says to the church in roughly 90 AD, written by the Apostle John, to the angel of the church of Ephesus, write, these things says... He who who holds the seven stars in his right hand, and he who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. That's Jesus walking among the churches. Verse 2, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. You've persevered. You have patience. You've labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Doctrinally, the church in Ephesus is sound at this point. I mean, they're right on. They're solid. They're testing those who say they're apostles. They're doing what, Timothy, what, what Paul's going to tell Timothy to tell them. They're responding to that. They're doing it. They're, they're, they're probably a big church. They're probably, I know your works. You're working hard. I know your labor. You're serving God. Faithfully, there's things going on. There's outreach. There's ministry. This would look like a church everybody wants to be at. I know all the things that you're doing. Down in verse 6, you hate the, but this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. You're standing on truth in the church of Ephesus. Your doctrine is so solid, it's right there. But look at verse 4. Nevertheless, I have this against you that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else. I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. You see, the Apostle Paul is warning the church of Ephesus through his protege, Timothy, saying, listen, doctrinally, you need to be sound. Doctrinally, you need to be right there. And the church received that message. But they made a mistake. Just 20 years later, what happened? They left their first love. It became all about the organization. It came all about the church. It became all about the ministry. It became all about this and it didn't, it wasn't about Jesus any longer. You see, the focus of the church always has to be Jesus Christ. The focus of your life has to be Jesus Christ. If it's anything else, if it's serving the Lord, if it's doing this for the Lord, if it's doing that for the Lord, no matter what it is, it has to be Jesus Christ. When we concluded the book of Revelation, we talked in the last two chapters about what the new heaven and the new earth would look like. Amazing, beautiful, can't wait to get there. No more sin, no more sorrow. But let me ask you this question. Would you be okay in that place if Jesus wasn't there? Everything else was there. Beautiful place, beautiful garden, beautiful setting, everything. The river of water, the streets of gold, all of it. Would it be okay? Would would you be okay there? If the only thing that was missing was Jesus, it's a challenging question, isn't it? You think, well, I want all that. But our focus as believers needs to be Jesus Christ and only Jesus Christ. He needs to be our hope. He needs to be the top of the food chain in our life needs to be the one driving us, the one pushing us. He is the reason we are a police officer or a plumber or a teacher or whatever it is that we're doing. He's the reason for that. Our hope doesn't lie in our ability to succeed at that. Because if, it, if it's taken away from us, our hope is still in Jesus Christ and he will never be taken away from us. Our hope doesn't lie in, in the things that we have in a relationship or not having a relationship. It needs, our hope is in Jesus Christ alone. You see, After, in John chapter 21, Jesus came to Peter after Peter denied knowing Jesus. Remember, Jesus was being led to the cross and a little teenage girl said to him, aren't you one of them? And he cursed at her. I don't, even, I don't even know this man, he said. At that very moment, Jesus looks out across the courtyard and sees Peter. Peter's the rock. He's the one that's standing He's the one that's def- going to defend Jesus. He's, the, he's, the, he's cut off a guy's ear for Jesus, cut off Malchus's ear. He's willing to go to battle for Jesus. And now he denies even knowing him. And Jesus, before being ascended to the Father, meets with Peter and he says to Peter, do you love me, Peter? He said to Peter, do you agape me? Meaning, do you, are you, will you give me this unsacrificial love? And Peter said, Lord, I, and he used the word phileo, the Greek word phileo, I really like you, Lord. I really like you, I really like you, Jesus. And he says to him, and he tells him to feed his sheep. He says to him a second time, Peter, do you agape me? And he says, Lord, I, I phileo you, meaning I really like you. And he says, tend my sheep. And the third time, he says to Peter, he says, Peter, do you phileo me? He lowers his standard to meet Peter right where he's at. Right there, he meets Peter. He says, do you phileo? And Peter's grieved. He says, Lord, you know all things. And he tells Peter, then feed my sheep. And he closes that chapter with one, two final words. He says, follow me. You see, Peter didn't know how to love with the agape love that Jesus was asking him for. That's why he grieved. But Peter, but Jesus would tell Peter, follow me. And over the course of Peter's walk, and you can watch it in scripture, and you read first and second Peter, and you find out he got to know that agape love. How did he get it? By following Jesus Christ. That is the only way that we're going to find the love that he's calling us to have. It only comes through him. So I challenge you with this this morning. The top of your life, your hope, where it lies, who you are, is it all about Jesus Christ? Or is it about something the world might have to offer? Don't misunderstand. You can do all those things. You can still have a career. You can still have a hobby. You can still be successful. You can still do all those things. But is that where you're putting your hope? Is that where where you want? Is that that, that what, if if it's, let me ask you this. If it's taken away tomorrow, if it's removed, would it rock your faith? Well, God, I thought you loved me. God, I thought you, why did you do that to me, God? And I'll tell you where your hope is. Let's pray. Father. Lord, as we begin this book of Timothy, we're going to see lots, lots of instruction for the church, for the pastors, for the people serving in ministry. Lord, I pray that we have an open heart to receive it. Lord, for you wrote it down for a reason. May we always come to your word with the desire to be changed, the desire to hear from you. Lord, may we take this book and may we apply it to our lives. And Father, may our hope be in you and nothing else. Lord, would you search our heart this week? Would you show us if it in something else? Instead, may we walk faithfully with you. In Jesus' name, amen.